Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 58 of Hack to Start. This episode features Jeff Goldenberg, the co-author of The Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy and the head of growth at Borowell. Tyler and I wanted to invite Jeff onto the show to share his awesome story and insights as an entrepreneur, growth hacker, author, and teacher. Jeff has an unmatched talent for marketing and growth. He launched some impressive businesses ranging from fantasy poker camps to a top chef cooking university and more. He is also the co-author of The Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So let's start off by getting to know a bit more about yourself, where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Sure. That sounds like a a good place to start. So um, I feel like I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, It's kind of like a cheesy uh, expression, but I feel like it chose me. I didn't choose it. And um, I really do feel that um, people that have characteristics that tend towards entrepreneurship, it, it could be a born trait. And um, I, I was entrepreneurial ever since I was a kid. My first lemonade stand, I got a good uh, lesson in margin when I made 20 bucks and my mom yanked back 12 of it for cost of goods sold. And that was like a, at eight or nine, that was like an absolutely shocking lesson. It was like, what do you mean I didn't just make $20? Um, but that was fun. And I used to, um, I used to be like big into like baseball cards so I would take all the stuff I wanted to get rid of and I'd rent a table at one of these shows full of nerds like me. And I'd set up my stuff in this little case I built and sell my stuff just so I had enough money to buy more of it. <clears throat> so I've always been entrepreneurial. Um, I went to McGill. I studied um, I got my Bachelor of Commerce there. And it was funny because in my residence, which is called Douglas Hall, um, a lot of the varsity football players lived in that residence with us. And they were always complaining that um, – there was this one logo that they loved, but the school didn't use it anymore. And now all their stuff has like this traditional McGill logo on it. So I was like, huh, beer money. What if I just make them the stuff they want and sell it to them? So I got one of them to pass around an order form. And, and basically I was like outfitting the varsity sports teams uh, from my dorm room at McGill. So I feel like I've always had the bug and I've been in startups for the last 15 years or so. So I've definitely spent a lot of time with them. But yeah, I studied business at McGill. I went and got my MBA at York right after. This is back in, I guess, 2001. And um, I, I specialized in um, marketing and entrepreneurship at uh, during my MBA at York. So um, that's sort of my background from an educational standpoint. And it was at York. Um, I was a member of this group called the York Consulting Group. It was actually a really cool um, initiative there. So basically, any companies from the community that obviously couldn't afford, like, brand name consulting could hire your consulting group and they'd get a team of us for like $60 an hour and we made a little bit of it and the school made a little bit of it. But it got you sort of practicing the stuff you were learning with real companies from uh, the community. 
And I actually got my first job from a startup that was a client as part of the York Consulting Group. And that put me into the tech industry really at the end of the, um, the tech bubble. So basically like the worst time you could ever get into it. But that's what we did. So after attending both McGill University for a BCom in entrepreneurship and then York University for an MBA, you had the opportunity to join Toronto Argonauts Football Club as their director of marketing. Can you talk to us a bit more about that experience and how it impacted the start of your career? For sure, yeah, it was really interesting. So, um, like I said, I was I was at a couple startups um, at the end of the dot com bubble that didn't do well, and I, I ended up in the office of a headhunter, and I told this headhunter that I wanted to get into the venture capital world, um, and that was because I had spent the last three years going around the country and the states begging VCs and investors for money for our startups, and I was like, I want to be on the other side of the table. And this guy who who was having me at his office for this headhunting meeting literally told me I should watch the obituary and wait till someone dies because that's the only way you get into venture capital. And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's really awesome, actionable advice. Thank you so much. I'm glad. I devoted an hour of my time to this meeting and I, like, I'm basically getting dressed and he's like, are you into sports? And I said, yeah, I'm into sports. Why? And he said, I don't, I don't know how much you guys know the name, but Garth Drabinsky, um, they, he, the Argos had, the owner of the Argos had just hired this guy, Garth Drabinsky, who is like um, an infamous at this point um, theater impresario. He started Cineplex. He brought Phantom of the Opera into Canada, which was like the longest running Broadway show ever. Anyway, he's just like sort of a magician when it comes to show business and entertainment. And this guy told me that the owner had just hired him and given him a big budget to work on these pregame and halftime events at Toronto Argos home games with the intention of bringing more people into the stadium and bringing younger people into the stadium. And he told me um, that it was going to be a, a massive pay cut from what I was looking at, looking for, um, but I was going to work hand-in-hand hand with him out of his office as basically his liaison between <clears throat> the team and marketing and him. And I took the job and it, it was like a second NBA um, because he's sort of one of the best advertisers and had one of the best marketing eyes of anyone I've ever met. And I really got sort of a crash course in, um, in advertising and marketing from him when I worked for him. And we got to do like really fun things. We got to book musical acts and, and all, all these events that were like uh, dreamt up to bring new people into the stadium because their attendance was slumping and their fan base was, was aging to say the least. So, like, he would say something like, okay, we need to do something in action sports. And I'm like, Garth, you don't even know what action sports are. And he's like, yeah, skateboarding. I was like, okay, well, that's pretty impressive. What do you want to do? And he's like, let's just bring in the best skateboarder. And I said, well, that's Tony Hawk. He's like, great, go get me Tony Hawk. And I was like, I don't know how to get a, I don't know how to get a Tony Hawk. He's like, you'll figure it out. So I did. I figured out who his agent was. I used Garth's name because his name meant a lot in show business. And long, long story. But we got Tony Hawk. We figured out how to make a small enough half pipe that he could do a really killer demo, but we could still roll it under the stands for the second half of the game. We figured out how to get Pepsi to pay for him, even though it was a Coke-pouring stadium. That was an interesting one. So that was totally fun. And then the season sort of culminated with us. Um, holding this huge Parkinson's fundraiser and telethon for Parkinson's honoring Muhammad Ali. So we got one of Muhammad Ali's four global appearances from Coca-Cola to be at the halftime of the Argo game. And we invited in all these different boxers and athletes from the city to basically pay tribute to Ali and raise money for Parkinson's. And, and that was just about insane. It was a, a crazy event to be a part of. So I, I think what I learned from that job, to answer back to your question is um, a great eye for advertising um, and marketing and how do I say this nicely 
a way to to really hold um, service providers and ad agencies and stuff accountable. Like he never settled for anything that was short of what he thought was perfect. Um, second thing, I think I got a little bit of a swagger from him because he was so confident and he could just walk in any room. And I was there when he convinced Coca-Cola to give us one of these four global Muhammad Ali uh, appearances. And this was right around the Atlanta Olympics where like there's nothing b- bigger than Muhammad Ali. And, and just to think big, like, you know, a lot of times it would have been really easy to settle for the second or the third best of something. But, you know, he was always thinking, like, how big can it be? And um, I, I think, frankly, that lesson itself is a real, really rare lesson in this country. I don't think a lot of people are teaching people to think big. And I know that because it took me, like, 12 years before I realized that, like, it's the same work to think big as it is to think medium. Um, so I thank him for that lesson for sure. So from there, you spent the next six years working on your first startup, Post Oak Productions. So what type of company was it? So just to end the Argo story, when Garth's uh, uh, contract ended, I, I was the director of marketing, but I wasn't really that keen on the, the sort of business team there. Prior to that, I was working out of Garth's office and just going over there when we had meetings, and, and it wasn't really the place for me. Um, and, and I wasn't really, I don't think, appreciated at that point because they weren't looking to do what I was thinking the team should do. So anyway, long, long story, I, I left and I had to figure out um, what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to start something on my own, but I wasn't really sure what. Um, I didn't have a ton of ideas. So um, I went with a friend of mine to Las Vegas and we were, we were into poker at the time, like not seriously, but we'd have a weekly game where me and all my friends would play and it was a lot of fun. And we were deciding that we sort of wanted to take it more serious from a learning perspective, not necessarily from a gambling perspective. So we went down to Vegas to play cards, and, and one of the things that actually my friend noticed was that these poker players are being treated like you know NFL stars. Everyone wants their autograph and photos, and we talked to my brother on the phone, and it was really crazy. So my friend had this idea like, well, they have baseball fantasy camp where you go and you face some pitcher who you're never going to hit unless he takes it easy on you. Why don't we have poker fantasy camp? It's booming on TV. Um, we can get the players, and, and what makes it better than sports fantasy camp is that the players could they could win any given hand against the pros. So long story short, we made a small list of the top three poker players in the world. We called them. One of them was interested. Um, we spent months working a deal out with their agent because at this time they had agents. And we started this poker camp with this guy named Phil Hellmuth, who's like sort of the Michael Jordan of poker. Um, so we started running them at Caesars Palace in Vegas, and people would pay all this money to come down and learn poker and play in tournaments and go to nightclubs and stuff like that and kind of have like a poker fantasy weekend. And we did that for a couple years. And um, a couple years into it, Harrah's Entertainment bought the Binion's Horseshoe in downtown Vegas. And the only reason they bought it was to obtain the World Series of Poker, the WSOP brand. So they took the brand, they resold the casino because that's not why they bought it. And they moved the WSOP to um, the Rio in Vegas and put a lot of shine on it. It moved from like one of those historic like old old school Vegas venues to like a new shiny glossy all sweets place. So anyway, we knew the guys with WSOP. We always invited them to the events with uh, uh, Camp Helmuth. And they asked us if we wanted to do a deal to um, to take what we're doing and do it under their brand. So we created the World Series of Poker Academy or the WSOP Academy. And we toured those all around the states to, you know, all the different casinos that Harris operates. And it, we scaled it, and we weren't um, uh, reliant on, on one particular poker player's schedule. We could use a, a ton of different ones. And we basically created this property that taught serious poker players how to be better. And that's what Post Oak Productions was. What was your experience like building your first company? 
Oh, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, when I think back on it, it was like, I don't know, it was the ultimate trial and error because everything was a trial. Every day was like something new and you'd get in trouble and have to work out of it. And it was, it was, um, it was challenging. There, um, it was totally fun and I enjoyed learning on the fly. That's how I sort of learned the best. But um, it's so much easier now just knowing the, the missteps to avoid. Mm-hmm. So this is a perfect segue into the next question. So what were some of the actual lessons learned from building uh, post-oak productions? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess without knowing it at the time, it was probably my introduction to growth hacking because I spent a lot of time doing the traditional marketing things and it wasn't really working that well. It would do okay. I'd get a return. I'd sell like, you know, these, these entries to the camp. But it was only once I sort of gave myself the permission to try some more creative things that um, I got stuff that worked really amazingly. Um, I'll, I'll beat you to it and ask you for an example of that. Um, <laughs> you did beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we did that was really cool and that I think about all the time in terms of how can I apply it was we licensed this little bit of software that let you simulate 50 hands of No Limit Texas Hold'em online. And then it gave you a report in terms of um, what your skill level was and where you needed to focus your attention. And with the data from that report, we were able to give people in that email a recommendation on which type of academy they should attend because we were running like a tournament one versus a cash game one and an advanced one against the beginner one. So they got the report that gave them where to, to improve. They got the recommendation on which type of academy would be right for them and they got $150 discount to sign up to it, which was well below our, our cost per acquisition. So we got so much attention and um, signups as a result of that uh, licensing that little um, software just because I think we got to engage with the user before asking them to put a really big amount on their credit card. And we got that, you know, a decade later, everyone's talking about how you have to give, you know, give to get back and you have to, you know, give content, prove that you're trustworthy and, you know, knowledgeable and all that stuff. But like we were doing it 10 years ago and it worked even better then showing them that we knew uh, what parts of their game they needed to improve, targeting specifically what, which event. And then giving them an incentive worked amazingly well. So that was really neat. And I think all the time about like, how do I do that on whatever I'm working on now? That's awesome. That's a pretty great story. So in 2010, I guess you, you ended up launching your second startup, which was Top Chef University. So for those who might not know, what is Top Chef University and, and what motivated you to move from poker to, to cooking? Again, it was because it was just a particular interest I was in at the time. I know poker and cooking don't sound very similar, um, but they were both booming at the time. This was just when TV cooking was starting to become a big deal. Yeah. Um, and they both have humongous audiences. So um, I was lying in bed watching this show called Top Chef one night, and I said, everyone loves the show. It's the top-rated show in cooking, but when it's over at the end of the season, there's like eight months of no Top Chef. That's really dumb. So it got my, my head thinking around, like, what's a brand extension for Top Chef? Because that's exactly what I did with the World Series of Poker, was just extend their brand into a logical new way of making money. Um, and I was working at the time with a company in Las Vegas that does um, platformized virtual training. So you basically skin the platform and put your content in, and you could make the content available to sell. So a bunch of things um, combined together. Uh, remind me to talk, um, talk about that concept of ideas combining later. But a lot of ideas combined together and the concept we had was for people who want to get a real culinary school education but don't want to spend 60 grand in six months of their life, we're going to do a video, uh, we're going to license the Top Chef name, 
do a video cooking school based on the show, use a, a big handful of their past contestants who everyone knew from the show, like from cheering for in the, in the reality show, and create, um, it ended up being a 60-hour video course featuring these chef-testants, they call them, and um, modeled after a real culinary education, like starting with you know, the, be the, the beginnings and knife sharpening and how to cut vegetables and going all the way up into like uh, entertaining and global cuisine and even molecular gastronomy. So we, we got a deal done with uh, NBC Universal to license the brand and we built our own studio and shot 60 hours of uh, brand new culinary education video over about a 55 day shoot with one day off, which was insane. And basically came up with this thing called Top Chef University, which you could subscribe to to get Top Chef certified as a Top Chef University graduate. And they, at the beginning, it was launched on a website, and we used this company out of Vegas to deliver the course to them. And it was very cool. There was interactivity and tests and scoring and stuff like that. Um, but after a while, we realized that we have such good content that it's sort of up to us to see which other ways we can leverage it. And we ended up um, launching it on tablets like uh, Samsung and iPad for like a, a mobile version. And then phones like iPhone and, and Samsung Galaxies for like an on-the-go version. And ultimately, we produced a 17 DVD box set that came with like a hardcover cookbook with all the 200 recipes from the course. And we sold that in Costco and Target. So it was literally um, a case of throwing it all against the wall and seeing what stuck. But it was an amazing lesson and a whole bunch of... Uh, distribution channels and tailoring your, your revenue model or your business model to a channel and not having it negatively reversely affect the other ones, which we probably weren't that successful at. But it was like three times the learning because we were working on so many different channels at once and we had a really, really small team. So that product's still around and, um, in, in all carnations and doing, doing okay. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy adventure to put that together from from beginning to end. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds unreal, man. So did, did you pick up any, any cooking uh, skills uh, throughout that? <laughs> I, you know what? I, I've always been a good cook. My mom taught me how to cook. She's a great cook. I've always enjoyed it. It kind of baffled me that people can't cook because to me it was just about like following instructions as closely as I can. Um, but what I, what I learned subsequently is you sort of need to have the confidence to follow the instructions. But yeah, I totally do. I mean, to this day I use my iPad. Um, the way I, I find it easiest to cook is I pull up one of our recipes and um, I prepare the stuff that they did tell me to prepare in the um, in the ingredients list, but then I'll watch the video and cook along with it to make sure that I'm doing the steps right and that everything sort of looks the way it's supposed to. And honestly, like we thought this was – so a couple things changed in the process. This product's five or six years old. First of all, there's like seven different varieties of Top Chef show now, everything from Top Chef Masters, Top Chef The Kids. Top Chef All-Stars, Top Chef Just Desserts. So this original problem of like only four months of Top Chef, Top Chef's at full saturation. So that changed. And then the other thing that changed was web video, where now like all the shows and all the networks are doing first-run online content yeah. for free, where at the time like there was crappy YouTube stuff and then there was us. Um, so those were like two major environment shifts that we weren't really prepared for. But yeah, I still use the product to cook all the time. I think it's the easiest way to cook and especially if you're doing something for the first time and you haven't had some like trial and error with it, I think it's the easiest way to, to cook the first time. Yeah, absolutely. So 
You've mentioned a couple uh, a couple of big partnerships, you know, th- throughout 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 the episode so far with different experiences, and and the latest one was leveraging that that NBC brand of of Top Chef. So before we get you know more into it, I want to know like how do you go about getting these partnerships? How do you go after um, you know someone in business and, and pitch them an idea and get them to come on board, especially if you know it's it's kind of like you and and some some video people versus NBC. Yeah, um, I, Franco. I wrote a startup play uh, for Franco on this very topic. I think it was called. Uh, I don't remember the exact title, but something along the lines of um, how how to how to create partnerships when you don't have leverage. Because, like like you said, I was going up against these like I don't know if they're Fortune five hundred, five thousand, whatever, but like big ass companies, and like bringing my little PowerPoint deck and my little suit, but like. For the World Series of Poker Academy, I was up against Clear Channel. They wanted to do something in this space. So it's like, I don't know how I did it necessarily, but I do know that I had no fear about picking up the phone and calling someone, and I had no fear about getting on a plane and visiting someone. And I always figured, like, there really is no risk. They, they may tell me, like, it's the dumbest idea they've ever heard. And it'll be smart for an hour, and then I'll figure out the next one. But, like, I never... And I do this to this day. Like I just pick up the phone and call people and say, interested in what you're doing, want to talk about it, think we do business together, have a way to make you a lot of money. I do it on Fridays, by the way. I find that Fridays people are in, people are in the best mood. And they seem to like to go into the weekend with an idea or a concept or something fun. So I call people on Fridays. I don't take no for an answer easily. Like I'm not a jerk about it, but I'll, I'll hit the ball over back over the net you know, three or four times before – I retire. I'm not really afraid of having someone say no. And I always try to put myself in their shoes and think about not what's important to me, but what's important to them, what their goals and objectives are, um, and what specifically they're going to be concerned about in terms of me and try to like deal with those things proactively. And also, the funny thing about the, the um, Top Chef University was when I went down to 30 Rockefeller Center, which is where NBC is, and it was pretty cool doing a deal there. Um, I was pitching them on an idea for a live event, just like my poker weekends. And it was right in 2007, 2008 when the economy tanked. And they're like, dude, no one's going to give you $3,500 to come and cook with you for the weekend. I didn't really agree with it, but I was quick enough on my feet to sort of pivot right on the spot to virtual training because I was I was working and, and talking to this company out of Vegas. I was like, well, what do you guys think if it's only like 20 bucks a month and we do it virtually? And they're like, go on. <laughs> and you just listen to for one of those signs. And, and so, like, you know, it would have been really easy to take their denial personally and turn on my heels and get back onto my Air Canada flight and come home with, like, a bad story. Yeah. Um, but you got to stay, like, flexible enough to if you hear something, which was like, yeah, I agree that people really want this, but I don't think they can afford it right now you have sort of that ability to pivot and get two meetings out of one. But yeah, I mean, that's my advice to any of your listeners. Pick up a phone and, and call people. Like, no one's gonna, no one's sitting around waiting to steal ideas. They've all got so many of their own that, like, they don't know what to do with it. And I've just had such good success with it. Yeah, absolutely. No, those are those are some huge insights. I'll have to try your, your Friday afternoon trick. <laughs> <laughs> so... So building a multi-sided marketplace, two-sided marketplace is, is really complicated, you know, balancing the supply and, and sort of demand side, production and, and growth. So, you know, based on your experience, what kind of insight would you give to others who are trying to build this type of business? And and how did you approach, you know, growing, uh, especially the, I guess, the, the demand side of, of uh, Top Chef University? 
Yeah, so we, were, we weren't exactly a marketplace. I do have a good advice for starting a marketplace business that I'll, I'll share in a second, but it wasn't exactly a marketplace in that we were producing content and then selling it to the masses. So, you know, there wasn't anything on the, on the other side in terms of, you know, people producing content or us even sourcing it to the, to the point that we actually never updated our content. So one of the things, um, it would have cost a fortune to keep that content raw, uh, live and updated. And it cost us a fortune to record it the first time. We thought inserting crappy content would just take away from the good content. So we made it about a cycle. You go through it, you have it for 12 months, you get certified, and then it becomes like an encyclopedia on your shelf. So we, we didn't actually, that's how we dealt with the fact that we couldn't refresh our content. We made it expensive, and it had a lifetime, and you went through it, and that was it. So... Um, but someone told me really interesting advice for a marketplace just the other day, and it was this concept of a single-player mode. Have you guys heard of this? No. So the concept of single-player mode is that in a marketplace, everyone's playing two-player mode. They're playing – the marketplace is facilitating um, activity between a seller and a buyer. And the idea of single-player mode was to figure out a way where each side of the marketplace can use and get value out of the marketplace without depending on the other side of it. And his point was, like, you can get traction faster and scale big, bigger if you're not immediately beholden to the buyer and seller providing value to each other because that could take time. But if you can provide this single-player mode, then each side of the marketplace can gain value and, and use the platform without relying on the others until the marketplace is ready for, you know, that transactional liquidity. Um, and I'm not working on a marketplace, but I think that's a really interesting, novel way of looking at it. And I totally agree. If you could figure out um, a way for each side to gain value without being dependent on the other, it can only help. Yeah, for sure. It's an interesting concept. And I like the analogy to video games. <laughs> I like video games too. <laughs> Educating others is something that you're extremely passionate about. You've even spent some time at Seneca College teaching advanced digital marketing and entrepreneurship and innovation. You are also the entrepreneur in residence at Mars Discovery District. So what motivates you to help and teach other entrepreneurs? I joined a group uh, called Entrepreneurs Organization. You guys may have heard of it. it's like YPO but for entrepreneurs and it's a global organization. It's got uh, pretty close to ten thousand members in like seventy different com countries. And one of the things they offered was the chance to apply to this program at MIT called the Entrepreneurial Masters Program. And it's put on um, MIT and EO put it on together. And basically, um, you go with all these entre entrepreneurs from around the world to this class one week a year for three years. And they bring in these speakers who are all entrepreneurs, and they taught us in a way that I was unaccustomed to being taught. There was no, um, there was no theory. It was all strategy and tactic and case study and proof. And it was like so actionable that by the end of the day, like your head was spinning because you had 80 things you wanted to like run back to your business to to work on. And it was an eye opener because I'd always been sort of committed to education, but this was an education, especially for entrepreneurs, that was so much more valuable. It was tactical. It was actionable. It was based on like, I fuck, am I allowed swearing on here? Oh yeah. Yes, you okay. are. Just double checking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I fucked up here. I don't want you guys to fuck up the way I did. Um, and it opened my eyes to like, teaching does not have to be academic. So um, I learned more than I've learned from any other endeavor in my life through that program. And, and my group of 65 people is still like a really tight group and we all help each other out, which is amazing. But I came back with this idea that um, 
entrepreneurs need to be taught differently than other people and it needs to be more experience based and the reason is is there's no right answer it's like poker in a way like you could play a hand six different ways and it, you could still win the pot there's no one way to do it with entrepreneurship there's no one way to do it so how do you teach something where there's no one way to do it you have to do it based on like what was the thought process you went through to determine which of these actions to take and what did you learn and how did you how did that impact your next crossroads when you had a decision. So anyway, that's probably a long answer to a short question, but that's why um, I'm motivated to help and teach entrepreneurs, and I try to do it like, it depends on, on the confines of where I'm teaching. You know, at Seneca, they have, um, you know, a strict curriculum that you need to teach, but even then, you know, I taught them how to use HubSpot. I taught them the HubSpot funnel. I taught them Lean Canvas. I, I you know, showed them webinars that like I, I might be watching at work that morning and then showing them. So I tried to keep it really real and sort of anecdote and story based more than just boring. And then at Mars, um, I'm just a volunteer there. Um, I work in with their information communication and technology startup group and they've got a whole bunch of companies in that group. And basically I'm just... Um, I, I guess uh, an advisor. Um, the people who run that department sort of know what my areas of specialty are and, and what kind of companies I can provide the most value to. So they introduce me to people and I just work with them. And sometimes I work with them, you know, I see them once for a couple hours and that's it. You know, they're, they sort of set a milestone and know what they have to do. And other people I work with sort of on a weekly basis and check in with all the time. So yeah, I just, I, I love meeting startups all the time and working with them and hearing their problems and I don't admit it to them but I'm learning as much from them as they are from me so it's just like a really good relationship. That's amazing. So you currently completed a Kickstarter campaign which raised over $10,000 and 150 backers for your first book Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy which outlines 100 proven growth hacks for digital marketers. What was it like writing the book and what process did you use? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you the story about that. Um, my writing partner has a digital agency in New Zealand called Tiger Tiger. Um, the website is tigertiger.co if anyone wants to check it out. They do some amazing work. He had one of the world's first growth hacking agencies, sold it, and then started up another one, which now I think is bigger than his last one. Um, and he put out a blog post that was called The Ultimate Growth Hackers Sourcebook. And it was amazing. It was like 60 growth hacks written in this really kind of irreverent, tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic style. And it was targeting um, SaaS marketers and, and teaching them growth hacks along that pirate metrics, AARRR, you know, model, marketing model. So again, theme in my life, pick up the phone, call someone, see what's up. So I sent him an email because it's in New Zealand and I had no idea what time it was there. I still have no idea how to go from Canada time to New Zealand time. Um, and I said, hey, awesome book, was working on something similar, what's your objective? And his objective was to get more exposure for his agency. So I said, well, I've got an idea, I want to know what you think about it. I want to take what you did in the format and I want to expand it. And I want to make it for all startup and digital marketers, not just SaaS marketers, because I think they have some specific benefits and disadvantages specific to them. I want to expand it and I want to turn it into a proper book. Would you be interested in doing that with me? And he said, yeah, he would. So we started a plan for how we'd expand it. We'd take some of the original growth hacks, we'd kill some of them that are not applicable, and we'd add more. And we decided to sort of organize it over um, the, the growth model of uh, three phases. The first phase is product market fit. There's no, no point in chasing growth if you don't have product market fit. And then transitioning to growth, which is really about testing, and then uh, growth, which is really about scaling. We organized the growth hacks that we were going to present over um, those three phases. So 
maybe a week after I approached him, the blog post picked up some traction. It got prom- promoted by Moe's and Inbound.org and Forbes. And the next thing we knew, we had like 45 or 50,000 views of the blog post and all this amazing feedback. So it really felt like we were on making the right decision to write it. People wanted it. They wanted more. They were really supportive. So that was really neat to get some feedback early. I could have framed the story and said we weren't planning on making a book until the audience demanded it, like sort of in that like lean launch kind of way, but we weren't that smart. But we did get validation very early that people liked what we were doing. Um, the next cool thing, you know, we decided to have these case studies of companies that have used growth successfully to become humongo, and I was planning on um, doing secondary research on them, but then I realized it was an amazing opportunity to meet like 12 amazing people. So I started reaching out to PR departments of humongous companies and people I knew and people who were connected to other big companies and um, and suggesting that I interview them for this and they all liked it because the book had traction and I got to just interview um, amazing people for the book CMOs and founders and CEOs and stuff so that was that was really really neat we talked to a couple publishers um, and they didn't really know what growth hacking was so we decided we'd use that to our advantage we'd make that part of our story you know this stuff is like too fresh and too new for them to even know about it, and that we're going to deliver it to you via Kickstarter. Um, we brought on a publisher, so we didn't really need Kickstarter. We had a, sort of an independent publisher um, who was going to publish us, but we thought the Kickstarter might be a good way, A, of collecting pre-orders and building some buzz, but B, also serving as a bridge between the interest in the blog post and the book, which we knew was going to take a while to produce. So we launched the Kickstarter. It was very, very difficult. It was my second, but my first one was with a a pretty known brand, so it had a lot of built-in marketing. Um, And the one thing I learned about Kickstarters um, is it's really easy to get a whole bunch of people excited at the beginning for the launch. It's relatively easy with a bit of hustle to get that 25% in the first day that they say you need to get, but it's almost impossible to maintain that momentum over 30 or 60 days. And if I'm to do one of these again, I really need to be convinced of a plan on how that momentum could be maintained over a long campaign. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. It's uh, that's an amazing story of how you you know you you went from the blog post to to then gathering some feedback and being able to interview others to kind of fill out that book. So, out of all the growth hacks that you've outlined in your book, what are your favorites, and did you actually use some for growing the following around your book? We did, um, especially when people started, you know, we weren't funded yet and people were like, come on, growth hackers, growth hack. And it felt like it was a tremendous amount of pressure to get this puppy um, funded um, and and use our tools. So we did. We we used a lot of cool email collection tools. We used a lot of email automation tools um, that got us to communicate more efficiently. Um, A problem that I had, not that this is, first of all, I reject the question because I don't think that there's like one, there's not a silver bullet that works for everyone. But let me come back yeah. to that. Um, one thing that I did that was really interesting was I had this network of um, friends that I wanted to email, and I was worried if I did it through MailChimp, it would seem too um, spammy and newslettery. Mm-hmm. And if I did it through um, just email, that it would go to spam. I didn't want to send out 900s, 900. So I, um, I used a cool Zapier zap between um, a Google Sheet that had all the email addresses and first names and Gmail. So it actually sent them out one by one, doing them like 250 a day to stay under the Gmail limit. So it's not like I, I cured cancer or anything, but that sure saved me a lot of time and all the email got delivered in sort of that one-to-one looking um, presentation that I wanted to. Back to your question about my favorite growth hack. 
I, th I think a couple of things. First of all, what I noticed teaching myself growth hacking was once I got comfortable with the mindset, the hacks themselves became obvious. It was more about understanding, defining the objective and figuring out what the bottleneck was, like what the part you had to hack was. That, um, you know, email, for example, you just, you, you can focus your research and your study on email marketing hacks and your universe just becomes a lot smaller and things just you know where to find things and how to get the resources and the support you need, the confidence you need to try new things. It's also so um, situational dependent and it doesn't always have to be technology. You know, like I have a friend who works uh, for a publicly traded app company and they had a humongous CPA for this free app and he did a series of offline events that got the CPA like a humongous fraction smaller, like pennies instead of lots of dollars. And it was a totally unsexy offline campaign. And at the end of the day, growth hacking to me is about getting a CPA cheaper than your competitors and cheaper than you know the current channels that you're using. And if you can constantly decrease your CPA, um, you're going to have a lot of left money left over at the end of the day, and that's going to be your fuel for growth. Because growth isn't as cheap as people like to think it is. I hear about all these growth hacking success stories where they have you know 400 grand a month on Facebook behind it. And it's like, yeah, that's my kind of growth hacking. Um, but then there's other people um, who, you know, really think it's a silver bullet and just think that all they need to do is be, like, sprinkled with the magic dust and, and they're there. And it's just not that simple. And every situation is unique and requires sort of a combination of, like, amazing creativity and understanding of the data so you know if things are working and enough of an understanding of technology that you know what's possible. I don't code. But I can zap the heck out of things. I can, you know, get APIs talking to one another, and I know where to get the help if I need it. So I'm I'm fairly functional. I also understand technology enough that when I put an idea forward, it's not a stupid one more often than not because I know technology enough to know the limitations and parameters. So I, I think you can you can be a growth hacker, and you can definitely more generally be a technologist without being a coder. And it makes you much more valuable as a marketer or as an entrepreneur in general if you sort of are coming at a problem understanding some of the limitations and constraints. That's a lot of great insights. We're both really huge fans of Zapier as well. Yeah, it's awesome. I just got let down by them the other day. It wasn't their fault. It was just I was really excited that they could solve a major problem I was having, and then I found out that they couldn't. So I'm a little down on Zapier, but it's completely not their fault. I'm a, I'm a humongo fan of theirs, and anyone who hasn't tried it should just like <laughs> go in and do something fun. Get your yeah. Gmail doing something that it's not supposed to do. And as soon as you sort of see the potential of it, it's like, wow, I can really use this to solve like a ton of problems. The problem I couldn't solve was not even their fault. It's just that zaps are only like forward looking. You can't go back and zap stuff. Oh, and that makes sense. Yeah, I needed some back to the future zapping. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe future implementation. Yeah, maybe. We actually found a, a great software company to solve the problem on more of a real-time basis, but... I'll tell you, it wasn't in the same price range, that's for sure. <laughs> so what's next for the Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy? Like, Are you guys going to be releasing like a volume two that may have more up-to-date growth hacks? Yeah, so this guy will come out probably October, November. So it's going to come out later in the year. It's going to be available in paperback and Kindle and um, PDF through our website. Um, and we've got some pretty interesting plans on how to promote it that aren't really traditional. Um, so I'm excited to test that. I found it hard to sort of test um, Kickstarter because I thought there were a lot of different moving parts. But I'm really excited to test some of the ideas we have to market the book. Um, we'll definitely update the book. Um, 
I'm hoping that Mark and I could do some speaking and get out and talk to some people and answer their questions because I do a bit of speaking and by far my favorite part is answering questions. If it was up to me, I'd you know just do a whole thing as a Q&A because I think I can add a lot more value if I'm dealing with stuff that's on their mind versus the stuff that's on mine. But I'd love to get out and do more of that. I'd love to answer questions and meet people. Um, and I mean, I'm just always learning. I set, you know, I try to do 60 minutes a day of reading and researching and catching up with the blogs I like to follow. And, um, you know, getting to all of my list of free trials that I've been offered that I wanted, well, everyone's offered, that I want to test out and see how it works. So, you know, it really is a little bit of a commitment to just staying up to date on what's going on and knowing because every day it becomes easier to growth hack and every day it becomes easier to be an entrepreneur because there's all these other entrepreneurs out there thinking how can I make their lives easier you know charge them $9.99 a month doing so and it just becomes easier and easier so I like to stay sort of up to date on on what's out there and available yeah absolutely that, that's a good point and uh, it's cool as soon as you mentioned Tiger Tiger I was like oh man they wrote an amazing blog post and uh, I, I didn't know that that was the the story that, that that's what started it that's pretty cool that's right and we chose the name the Growth Hackers Guide to the Galaxy because um, my my ultimate goal for this book it's kind of a random ultimate goal Mark may have a different one but my ultimate goal for this book is for it to be in college bookstores and airport bookstores college bookstores because I think college kids studying marketing would like it and it's, it's written like a recipe book. Like the case studies are prose, but each of the growth hacks are like a recipe. Here's the objective. Here's the challenge. Here's what you're trying to do. Here's who to use. Here's the steps. And here's a pro tip on like how to pimp it. Um, so it's like a recipe book. And you can flip through and find something that's relevant for today. You can go to the bathroom and read a couple. That might jog an idea on something else. It's not like um, you have to sit down and read it cover to cover. So the Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy I thought would have stopping power in those two made up situations college bookstores where there's probably a lot of nerds who like sci-fi and airports where like tons of marketers fly through all day and might want something that's like bite-sized to, to read yeah for sure so right now uh, you're currently the head of growth at, at Borowell so so what is Borowell and, and what are you doing there yeah so it's pretty new I've only been there for six or seven weeks um, so definitely in the honeymoon period um, Borowell is a marketplace lending company similar to like lending club in the states um, and what we do is for high credit Canadians who are carrying um, large balances on their credit cards will refinance their credit card balances at a lower term rate so they can save a ton of money on interest and be out of debt quicker um, we have an online application process uh, where basically our algorithm adjudicates a loan decision instantly. And so if you qualify, you, you fill in a little bit of information, a lot less than actually you'd expect for, for sort of a transaction of this size. You submit the button and within seconds, um, if you qualify, you get a three-year and a five-year um, loan offer for a certain amount at an interest rate that's, um, that's made just for you based on your um, credit profile and you can accept it and basically have the loan funded within a couple of days um, depending on how quickly you go through you know the, the few verification steps so Borowell is has a big goal and that is to try to eradicate Canada's high interest bearing credit card debt we don't think that credit cards are a bad thing if you use them responsibly and pay them off but if you start carrying large balances at you know 20 percent and above interest rate it's really not um, a very sound financial choice, and that's where we think we can help. 
That's pretty cool. So what are some of the main kind of growth channels or, or tactics you're, you're trying to implement there to kind of grow it? And, and how do you approach growth in, in sort of the, the financial tech sector, you know, to, to begin with, I guess? Yeah, really good questions. First of all, the, the fintech sector is so hot right now that we've we've had a nice tailwind in terms of, um, you know, some press and, and some investor love and stuff like that. So, you know, one advice that seems obvious but is so far from obvious is if you can launch a business in a hot sector, it's the difference between pushing a boulder uphill and downhill. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're guaranteed anything. Trust me, you're not. We're not guaranteed anything. But I'll tell you, like, the wheels are greased. People not only want to take your call, but like they're tasked to, to find things in this sector and it just makes life a lot easier. Now, I'd be the last person to say, you know, kowtow your dreams or dovetail your dreams with like the current wants and needs of VCs. I think the best thing about being an entrepreneur is you get to live your dream and do it the way you want. But if you're going into the business that's going to require sort of like the institutional series A in quotes investment, then it really is, is helpful if you're in an industry that, that's hot. And, and fintech is hot right now. It's a very different market in Canada, the U.S. The U.S. Um, sort of the marketplace lending model has been around for seven or eight years, and it's sort of like the wild, wild west. And in here, uh, in Canada, there's only a couple companies, us and you know another company that's been around maybe six months longer than us. And um, you know we're we're figuring things out with the OSC to make sure that everything is you know that we're always on on the correct side of the field, even though you know sort of the regulation is evolving around us. And we're trying to figure out new ways to reach borrowers that would traditionally deal with, you know, um, the big five banks. And they have 30, 40 year relationships with these banks and a lot of inertia. So um, our challenges are we have one really specific challenge, um, and that's to find to identify people who have credit scores in the range that we can give good offers to. So you need to have a credit score of 660 to, to qualify. That's sort of like the baseline qualification for a personal borrow well loan because our loans are unsecured. If you borrow the money and want to go buy a car, you could do that. And if you default on your loan, not that we're recommending that, but like it's not secured against the car like a normal auto loan is. So we have to be really careful about who we give loans to. And when you think about it, that's really counter to a traditional growth acquisition strategy. A traditional growth acquisition strategy says, go out and get as many people as you can, as quickly as you can. Don't worry about CPA yet. You know, make sure it's trending down. But we're not optimizing CPA. We just need a ton of new users to get the, the word out. And if we did that at BorrowWell, we'd be toast in like three months because we wouldn't be giving loans to people whose credit profiles suggest they can pay them back. 85% of Canada has a credit rate above 660, but I think it's almost inverse with search. I think if you look at search, which and, and personal loan terms are huge search terms, I bet you 15% have credit scores over 660, because when you search for a loan, you usually search for a loan in more desperate situations. Yeah. I'm definitely generalizing. We do tremendous business through, through paid search on, on Google. But it's a challenge because you're looking for people with a credit score, and it's really hard to target on credit score. We've come up with some brilliant ways to do it that I definitely wouldn't want my competitors knowing, but it's really hard to come up with um, how, how to target for credit score. It's also hard to target like someone in a desperation position um, who needs money is going to put their hand up and say, I need money. Um, our potential borrowers don't necessarily need it at the time where we're in front of them. So it's a, it's a very distinct unique um, growth challenge that we have because we can't grow as fast as we want by 
you know, bringing on bad loans because we'll be out of business. So right now um, we're doing a lot of acquisition through Google. We're doing a lot of acquisition through PR. We're doing a lot of acquisition through social advertising. And, um, you know, we just went through the bullseye process from the, uh, Gabe Weinberg's book, Traction. And I, I run a Traction meetup, so we're practicing this all the time. Adventure, I've run bullseye more than anyone else in the country. Um, but basically what we do is we look for three channels. We go through a process to discover three channels to test really um, cheaply and quickly to look for a sign of life. And only then do we start focusing on optimization and A-B testing and, you know, all, all the stuff that you would normally do too early because you don't know whether the traction is that the channel is viable yet. So a perfect example of that was like we didn't expect a lot of the social. And then when social started performing as well as it did, that was the appropriate time to optimize and just become the best social media marketer that we could be and make sure that we're staying up to date. So um, that's the kind of thing we're up to at Borowell. We just had um, an anniversary yesterday. Um, we've processed $100 million in loan applications. And um, if you guys have like a vanity metric button or buzzer, you could push it right now because that is a vanity <laughs> metric. But... You should get some sound effects for the show. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Anytime you, you spout a vanity metric, you just yeah. push this button. No, but, that, but that's cool. What's really neat about it, though, is that a lot of people have um, trusted us enough to give us their um, personal sensitive information to get adjudicated. So that's really cool, and we're feeling really good about it. But we have a very um, aggressive growth traje trajectory for the rest of the year, and it's, um, it's intimidating and fun at the same time. Man, that's awesome. I can't wait to see what you're able to do with Borowell through 2015 and onwards. Thank you. So what apps, devices, or tools are you currently using right now? And are there any books that you're currently reading or on your recommendation list? Yeah, um, I'll start with the books. I, I try to read a business book a week. I'm not always successful at it, but that's sort of my goal. I love Gabe Weinberg's book, Traction. It's a must for any digital marketer founder. It's just a really good way to come up with a traction marketing plan that's sensible. I love Lean Startup and everything about it. Um, I like Value Proposition Design by Osterwalder. We've been playing with that um, at Borowell lately. So, you know, the business, it's the follow-up to business model generation, but it focuses on the customer uh, segments, so like who your customer is and how your product fits. Um, I'm really, I've become like a grumpy old stickler for product market fit. Like, it's that you have to spend the most amount of your effort on product market fit and resist the temptation to just try to market and acquire quickly because there's nothing more deflating for a company and, and your bank balance than spending money too early. And it's such a temptation to just get out there, get out there. But like until you have a message that's resonating strong enough with your target market for them to spend money, you can't scale until that's there. Two of the people I interviewed for the book just on this topic, um, one was Ethan Song, the, the founder of um, Frankenoak. And the other was um, Rob Walling, the founder of Drip, the, the email automation software. And they both said the same thing that a lot of other guys echoed, but I thought it was so simple but so brilliant. The biggest growth hack is to develop a really simple value proposition, figure out who your target market is, and get it in front of them. Is this rocket science? This is not rocket science. Yeah. But it's like it's brilliant when you hear the execution, okay? So Ethan Song at Frank and Oak got 10,000 people signed up to his service before he opened the door. So he created like people were clawing over each other to get into his service first. And his value proposition was, um, I'll paraphrase, but it's something like premium threads for under $50. 
And he got that message in front of like the Facebook groups that were like fashionistas and millennials that care about clothes and all that stuff. And all, all of them were like, yeah, you know what? I want premium threads for under $50. I go to the store. I don't see premium threads for under $50. You can have my email address, right? Like, let's talk. So that's like brilliant. Um, Rob Walling at Drip came up with a tagline and the tagline was lightweight marketing automation that doesn't suck. Why is that interesting and why did that work when he got it out in front of marketers? First of all, it was lightweight in that most people dip a toe in like MailChimp automation and they're like, whoa, you need like a Bachelor of Science or something to, to do it because it's, it's, it's pretty intimidating. It's a, it's a heavyweight email automation platform. And then they try a lightweight one and it would suck. So when someone told them that there was finally a lightweight marketing automation company that doesn't suck, they bit. And, you know, his story fits, his UI is really easy, it's stripped down to the basics. I, I love using Drip. Um, but that, that's an amazing example of like just something really basic. But what, what it does is I think it's the ultimate product market fit test. You have your value, your value proposition down to something that's short enough to be communicated. You have your target market identified to the point that you know where, where it is and, and who to talk to. And you put it in front and they put their hand up. That's product market fit. And I think the reason why retro, retrospectively they look at that and say that was the ultimate growth hack is because that was the proof that they had the product market fit needed to get into growth. The table stakes of growth is being able to put that value proposition in front of your people and have them show some emotion, right? So very, very cool. And the book has like a ton of really good stories. We, we interviewed um, the CMO from Zenefits a couple of days after they raised half a billion dollars. Um, he was like the number two at the company. Um, we we, emailed, we uh, interviewed the CMO for Shopify who was on really early. So the book has just awesome, awesome stories in it. Um, those are the books I like, apps, devices, and tools. Um, what am I using that I'm loving these days? I love um, HubSpot Sidekick for email tracking. Um, I like knowing when people open my email. What else am I using? It's a really good question. Um, we're zapping everything at the office that we can think to zap of. Oh, here's a really good one. We've, we've dabbled with a, um, an app called AdEspresso which places your Facebook um, display ads for you and does a ton of optimizations in the background and then just gives you the results and reallocates the ads. And it still gives you all the functionality of like placing the ads through Facebook, custom audiences, like lookalike audiences, everything you need to do. But it does all these like small, it'll test, you know, one photo with four headlines and another photo with another four headlines and different custom audiences and demographic mixes and then just basically says, this one's doing better than this one. Do you want us to, to reallocate? Yes, no. Yes, it does it. So if you're dabbling or starting to get into Facebook advertising, Ad Espresso is wicked. It's free for the first little while. It's 49 bucks a month up to like, I want to say $20,000 of ad spend. I could be wrong. But it's a really, really awesome tool if you want to do social advertising but don't have the time or know-how to complete all the testing and optimization yourself. Yeah, I've heard really good stuff about them too. Yeah, their co-founder is named Massimo, and they're um, really smart, and they're great content marketers, and uh, they're going to be a case study in the book as well. But um, I actually came to them because I was enjoying using the software so much. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend them. It just makes it a, a lot easier. Sure, that, that's awesome. Those are some, those are some amazing recommendations, um, and, and definitely a fan of, of Traction as well. So are there, are there any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and, and you'd like to share with, with others? Well, that's a tough one. Um, have fun what you're doing. If you work on something you're really passionate about on a good day, it doesn't feel like work, which is always really nice. 
I think you have a way better chance of being successful in something that just makes you happy and that you're passionate about. And I, th I think if anyone would ever study the correlation there, I would bet a lot of money that there's a big correlation. You know, just constantly be learning. You don't have to, you know, the, one of my favorite books that I can leave it on is James Altucher's Choose Yourself. And basically the whole point of Choose Yourself is in this economy in 2015 or whatever year the book was written, you don't have to wait for someone to choose you. If you want to write a book, you go write a book. If you want to start a podcast, you go start a podcast. If you have a great idea for the creator of Survivor, pick up the phone and call the creator of Survivor. The days are gone when you have to sit by the phone and wait for someone to choose you. You can choose yourself. And once you do, really, really cool things and opportunities and adventures start to happen. So definitely pick up that book if you haven't had the opportunity to read it yet. It's really empowering. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, it is a good read. Uh, Jeff, man, thanks so much for hanging out with us and, and sharing some insights and some stories. Uh, I had a really great time chatting with you. It's a pleasure. I love your podcast and I can't wait to hear it. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.